New York, this is Democracy Now! And we want Taiwan to always have freedom with security. And we're not backing away from that. U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi becomes the highest-ranking U.S. official to visit Taiwan in quarter of a century. China responds with military drills. We'll go to Taipei to speak with Brian Chisheng Hu, Taiwanese-American journalist, editor of New Bloom magazine. And we'll speak with Michael Swain of the Quincy Institute, author of America's Challenge in Gazing a Rising China in the 21st Century. Then Senate Republicans reverse themselves again and pass a bill to aid U.S. veterans poisoned by the Pentagon's use of toxic burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan after being shamed by veteran victims, their survivors, and comedian Jon Stewart. I will say this. uh, I'm not sure I've ever seen a situation where people who have already given so much had to fight so hard to get so little. And uh, I hope we learn a lesson. President Biden says toxic burn pits may have contributed to the death of his son, Beau Biden, who served in Iraq and was then diagnosed with brain cancer. We'll look at the impact of burn pits not only on U.S. veterans, but on Iraqis as well, with Professor Kali Rabai just back from Fallujah. Iraqi people have endured long-term exposure to both burn pits and the other effects of military occupation on their um, on their land and their livelihoods. And so those long-term effects are not only limited to Iraqi people, but are also global effects of um, war, accelerating climate change conditions for people who are living in damaged ecosystems. And Kansas becomes the first state to vote on abortion rights after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Voters overwhelmingly reject an anti-abortion constitutional amendment. We'll get an update. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's departed Taiwan after a controversial visit that was criticized by the Chinese government as well as some officials within the Biden administration. Earlier today, Pelosi met with Taiwan's president and said U.S. support for Taiwan is ironclad. Today, the world faces a choice between democracy and autocracy. America's determination to preserve democracy here in Taiwan and around the world remains ironclad. Pelosi is the highest-level U.S. official to visit Taiwan in quarter of a century. China denounced her visit, saying it was damaging to stability in the Taiwan Strait. China's announced plans to carry out new air and naval drills and long-range live-fire exercises in six areas around Taiwan beginning Thursday. Taiwan said the military exercises are, quote, tantamount to an air and sea blockade of Taiwan. We'll have more on Taiwan after headlines. Voters in Kansas have overwhelmingly rejected an anti-abortion ballot measure. Nearly 60 percent of Kansan voters opposed adding a constitutional amendment to remove the right to an abortion in the state. The lopsided vote surprised many. During the 2020 election, Donald Trump won the state by 15 percent. If the amendment had passed, it would have cleared the way for Republican state lawmakers to ban abortion. In related news, the Justice Department 
Biden has sued the state of Idaho over its near-total abortion ban. Attorney General Merrick Garland said Idaho's ban violates the Federal Emergency Medical Treatment and Labor Act. It does not matter what state a hospital subject to Amtala operates in. If a patient comes into the emergency room with a medical emergency, jeopardizing the patient's life or health, the hospital must provide the treatment necessary to stabilize that patient. This includes abortion when that is the necessary treatment. Any state law that prevents a hospital from fulfilling its obligation under EMTALA violates federal law. In more news on reproductive rights, President Biden's expected to sign a new executive order today aimed at safeguarding abortion access. Voters went to the polls for primaries Tuesday in Arizona, Kansas, Michigan, Missouri and Washington. In Arizona, the far-right venture capitalist Blake Masters won the Republican Senate primary, will face Democrat Mark Kelly in November. Masters was endorsed by Donald Trump and bankrolled by his former boss, the billionaire tech investor Peter Thiel, who spent $13 million on the campaign. The white supremacist site, VDARE, has praised Masters as a, quote, immigration patriot. Masters blamed gun violence on black people, unquote. In other results from Arizona, Mark Fincham won the Republican primary for Arizona Secretary of State. Fincham's a state lawmaker and a member of the far-right Oath Keepers, who's been subpoenaed by the House January 6th committee for his actions in Washington, D.C., January 6th, and for his involvement in attempting to overturn Biden's victory in Arizona in 2020. Another election denier in Arizona, Carrie Lake, is leading in the Republican gubernatorial primary, but the race is still too close to call. Meanwhile, Rusty Bowers, Arizona Speaker of the House, lost his bid for a state Senate seat, losing to a Trump-backed candidate. Last month, the Republican Party in Arizona censured Bowers for telling the House January 6th committee that Trump and his lawyer Rudy Giuliani pressured him to overturn Biden's 2020 election victory in Arizona. In other primary election news, Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt has won Missouri's Republican Senate primary, defeating a crowded field, including Missouri's disgraced former Governor Eric Greitens. In Michigan, Republican Congressmember Peter Mayer, who voted to impeach Trump last year, has lost to John Gibbs, who is backed by Trump, and claimed Trump's loss in the 2020 election was, quote, mathematically impossible. The Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on ads to help elevate Gibbs' message as part of what some see as a risky strategy of aiding far-right candidates who might be more vulnerable in the November general election. In other election news from Michigan, Democratic Congressmember Haley Stevens has defeated fellow Democrat incumbent Andy Levin in the newly redrawn 11th Congressional District. APAC, the American Israel Public Affairs Committee, spent over $3 million to defeat Levin, a progressive pro-labor politician who used to serve as president of his synagogue. Meanwhile, two members of the squad, Rashida Tlaib in Michigan and Cori Bush in Missouri, won their primaries, defeating challenges from more conservative Democrats. Russia has accused the United States of direct involvement in the war in Ukraine for the first time. A spokesperson for the Russian defense ministry said intercepted communications show the United States is approving targets for U.S.-made 
Heimer's, uh, HIMARS artillery used by Ukrainian forces. The spokesperson said, quote, it is the Biden administration that's directly responsible for all rocket attacks approved by Kyiv on residential areas and civilian infrastructure facilities and settlements of Donbass and other regions that caused mass deaths of civilians, unquote. Russia had previously accused the United States of waging a proxy war in Ukraine. The United Nations has announced an agreement was reached to extend a ceasefire in Yemen by another two months. The initial truce went into effect April 2nd, but numerous violations of the ceasefire have been reported. The U.S.-backed Saudi-led war has led to one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. Yemenis have expressed hope the truce will finally bring the war to an end. The people of Yemen want the truce to remove this dark period from around them, for the seats to be broken, for salaries to be paid, for peace to return to all the people of Yemen. In related news, the Biden administration's approved $5 billion in missile sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, two countries accused of committing war crimes in Yemen. Under the deal, Saudi Arabia will buy 300 Patriot missiles made by Raytheon for $3 billion, and the UAE will purchase nearly 100 anti-ballistic THAAD missiles made by Lockheed Martin. The weapon sales were agreed to just weeks after Biden's controversial visit to Saudi Arabia. The New York Times reports two prominent Trump supporters in Arizona feared his plot to overturn the 2020 election could, quote, appear treasonous. Citing private emails, the Times reports Kelly Ward, the chair of the Arizona Republican Party, and State Senator Kelly Townsend both expressed concerns about acting as fake electors who would claim Trump won the state, even though Joe Biden received more votes. In an email on December 11, 2020, Trump attorney Kenneth Cheesebro wrote, quote, Ward and Townsend are concerned it could appear treasonous for the Arizona electors to vote on Monday if there's no pending court proceeding that might eventually lead to the electors being ratified as the legitimate ones, unquote. The attorney wrote the word treasonous in bold. Despite her concerns, Ward signed on to be a fake elector. Townsend did not, but she continued to promote Trump's election lies. In more news about Trump's attempted coup, The Washington Post is reporting the Pentagon wiped data from the phones of several top Pentagon officials after the January 6th insurrection, including then-acting Defense Secretary Christopher Miller and then-Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy. Key data was also wiped from the phones of top officials at the Secret Service and the Department of Homeland Security. And the Senate has passed a bill to aid millions of former U.S. service members exposed to toxic waste. The bill would require the Department of Veterans Affairs to remove the burden of proof from vets who say their health problems are related to the Pentagon's use of toxic burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan. The measure passed with a bipartisan vote of 86 to 11. It comes just a week after Senate Republicans blocked the bill from advancing after Senate Democrats announced they reached a deal on a separate bill aimed at cutting carbon emissions and reducing inflation. We'll have more on burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan and how they affect both U.S. veterans and Iraqis and Afghans. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hi, Juan. 
Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has left Taiwan after a series of high-profile meetings that increased tensions with China, making her the most senior U.S. official to visit Taiwan in 25 years. Pelosi met with Taiwan's president and Taiwanese lawmakers. Their encounter was partly broadcast online. It's really clear that while China has stood in the way of Taiwan participating and going to certain meetings, that they understand that they will not stand in the way of people coming to Taiwan. It's a show of friendship, of support, but also a source of learning about how we can work together better in collaboration. Pelosi discussed economic plans, including a possible trade deal between Taiwan and the United States, and met with key pro-democracy activists. Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, said she welcomed Pelosi's visit. Speaker's presence here in Taiwan serves to boost public confidence in the strength of our democracy as a foundation to our partnership with the United States. Meanwhile, China responded to Speaker Pelosi's trip to Taiwan, in part by announcing plans to carry out new air and naval drills and long-range live-fire exercises in six areas around Taiwan beginning Thursday. Taiwan said the military exercises are, quote, tantamount to an air and sea blockade of Taiwan. This is a spokeswoman for the Chinese foreign ministry. The relevant actions of the Chinese military are a deterrent to the separatist forces in Taiwan and are justified. You mentioned the issue of navigation in the waters. We have never seen any problems with the freedom of navigation in the waters. I think you should pay more attention to how U.S. warships and military aircraft have come so far right up to China's doorstep to show off their force. This comes as the U.S. is holding a massive military training exercise in the region with Indonesia, Australia, Japan and Singapore for the first half of August, with 5,000 soldiers on the island of Sumatra. This is the commanding general of the U.S. Army Pacific, Charles Flynn. With all of the technical and procedural aspects of this, it's just a, a really important expression of our, uh, our teamwork and our interoperability and our uh, our, uh, our unity, really, as, uh, as a group of nations that uh, are, you know, seek to continue to have a free and open Indo-Pacific. For more, we're joined by two guests. In Taipei, Taiwan, Brian Chisheng Hu is with us, Taiwanese-American journalist, founding editor of New Bloom magazine. And in Washington, D.C., Michael Swain is director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program, longtime U.S.-China relations analyst. His books and briefings include America's Challenge, Engaging a Rising China in the 21st Century. We welcome you both back to Democracy Now! Uh, Brian Hu, let's begin with you. You're right there in Taipei, where uh, where Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, has just left, along with her congressional delegation. Can you talk about the significance of this trip? That's right. And so, as mentioned, this is historic in the sense of this has not taken place in 25 years. Uh, but what's also interesting is that there has been such a large response. Under the Biden administration, there has more been the pattern of announcing these kind of visits after they take place. This gives China less of a window to react. But news of this broke much earlier, once there was a scoop by the Financial Times. And so then there have been weeks of discussion. But I think that what is interesting to note, or what is significant to note, is that while Taiwan would directly be in the line of fire from China, 
there was actually not panic the way there was in the international world in much discussion of it. I think there was not a lot of attention paid to that Taiwanese and their own threat assessment of what this will lead to. And so we'll see about the exercises, because China claims it'll only last for three days, and it does want to play them up as a blockade now, but that is to be questioned. And Brian, what what's your sense of the reaction within Taiwan among the the, uh, the Taiwanese people to uh, and the government as well to Nancy Pelosi's efforts? There have been some reports that even in among uh, within the Taiwan government, there were concerns about her visit. Well, I think the general public was not actually aware that this was really taking place until very recently. There is even a joke on the internet nowadays that people thought Pelosi was the name of a typhoon, that something was coming, it could cause chaos, but it was a typhoon. And so now this visit happened, uh, but it is also questioned under what circumstances it took place. There's a report from a very pro-China media outlet, which has been reporting on as taking funding and editorial direction from the Chinese government directly. The report claims that Taiwan tried to turn down Pelosi, to disinvite her, fearing the dangers, but that Pelosi was still insistent on going. That's hard to say. Uh, it's hard to know the veracity of this report, but the Taiwanese government is not in a position to say no to the U.S., even when it comes to issues that might put it in the line of fire. And I'd like to ask Michael Swain, uh, here we are less than uh, uh, a year since the disastrous end of the 20-year U.S. occupation of Afghanistan, just six months since uh, Washington's efforts to expand NATO triggered the Russian invasion of Ukraine and a conflict that's destabilized the entire world, pushed us closer to a nuclear war. Why would our political leaders risk at the same time a new confrontation with China, our planet's rising economic power and its most populous nation? Well, that's an excellent question. Um, I'm not sure I know the answer to it, why they would uh, want to do this at this time. I think the administration was not, in truth, terribly happy about Nancy Pelosi's decision to take a congressional delegation to Taiwan at this time. But they certainly knew about it well in advance. And they could have done a lot more to try to discourage it, but they did not. Um, and I, I guess from what they've been saying since uh, her visit there, that this is really no big deal. There's no difference here between what she's doing today and what's happened in the past, that they think the Chinese will sort of shrug and say, OK, well, I guess no big deal. But of course, that is not exactly what's happening. You've got, if anything, the reverse. Um, the Chinese have embarked on, as you said in your setup, a series of military actions here that rival or exceed the military actions that they took back in 1995-96. And uh, it's very hard to see how the Pelosi visit has helped or advanced Taiwan's security in light of this kind of Chinese reaction. Can you give, uh, Brian, some uh, background to the relationship uh, between China and Taiwan. I think a lot of people are watching this all over the world. Um, the historic background, the precise nature of the relationship between China and Taiwan, and how similar is it to Hong Kong? Yeah, so it is a sort of different circumstances. But as you can imagine, facing the threat of China, Hong Kong and Taiwan have long seen common circumstances in each other. So Taiwan uh, is settled by indigenous and Han settlers from previous centuries of migration. But as we know it today as the Republic of China, as it's officially known, though many do not like that name, uh, it is because of the, the KMT's defeat in the Chinese Civil War. It brought with it what are the descendants of which are 10 percent of the population, uh, around 80 around 80 percent, 78 percent were from prior waves of migration. 
And so there have been people in Taiwan for hundreds of years, and they, uh, Taiwan was only incorporated into China under the Qing dynasty, and that's only a part of, part of it. So that's not surprising then that why people in Taiwan often have a different sense of identity from China. And the KMT, when it came to Taiwan, tried to depict Taiwan as having always been part of China. This is similar to what the PRC claims today as part of its very modern territorial claims over Taiwan. The PRC did not always, in fact, you can even quote Mao on this, Mao Zedong, uh, make claims over Taiwan. But this issue now is contested in part because of geopolitics, because if China wants to expand its power outward into the Asia-Pacific, Taiwan is something it wants. And there's also the desire for, for example, Taiwanese semiconductors or uh, its resources and, and that sort of thing, because China is itself highly reliant on Taiwanese semiconductors for manufacturing, for its own supply lines. Even according to some reports, they are present in the very missiles that China has pointed at Taiwan. Michael, would you share um, Brian's analysis of the past and the relationship between Taiwan and China? Well, what Brian said is, as far as it goes, is, is fairly accurate. But I think the important point here is to understand what the larger context is uh, of the relationship and the understanding reached between the United States and China regarding Taiwan at the time of normalization back in the 1970s and recognition in 1979. At that time, China and the United States basically reached an understanding over Taiwan, which was a very contentious issue at the time. And in order to try to neutralize that issue, the Chinese basically made a statement that they would pursue peaceful unification as a top priority. They wouldn't give up the possibility of use of force because they regard Taiwan as sovereign Chinese territory and a sovereign state can exercise military force over its own territory. However, they said, we will no longer seek to liberate Taiwan by force as our policy. We're going to try and peaceful unification for years and work on that. By the same token, China said, OK, we recognize that China is a legitimate government. Uh, the PRC is a legitimate government of China. And we do not challenge the claim by China that Taiwan is a part of China. Now, they didn't say they officially recognize in a legal sense Taiwan is part of China, but they said they don't challenge it. So what you had here was the one China policy peaceful unification. Now, what's happened since that time is there's been a steady erosion on both sides in the level of their apparent commitment to those original pledges. And Nancy Pelosi's trip, this latest trip, represents yet another movement away from the different understandings and stipulations and procedures that were basic to the one China policy that the United States had been pursuing for years. She flew over to Taiwan on an official U.S. military jet that looked like Air Force One. She described her visit in Taiwan as an official visit. Um, she publicized it in a very major way, unlike G Newt Gingrich, who went as Speaker of the House 25 years ago to Taiwan. Newt Gingrich went to Beijing first. He stopped in Taiwan very briefly and then moved on. The Chinese didn't like it then. But now what Pelosi has done is much larger scale than this, much higher publicity, much more the trappings of an official visit. And that is really a basic violation of the understanding that the United States and China reached at the time of normalization, as I say. And there have been a lot of other developments over the years like that have moved Taiwan so closer and ask, closer to the I U.S. Actually why we are talking about a 50-year-old agreement without talking about the wishes of the Taiwanese people in the slightest, justifying that the present actions China takes are somehow justified towards Taiwan because of these two imperial powers, the U.S. and China, deciding on the fate of Taiwan. I think there's often a misperception that Taiwanese people are irrational, pursuing independence at all costs, even if this means regional conflict. But I think that if you look at the way Taiwanese people vote, it's pragmatic. 
the path they think will the path that they think will avoid conflict will allow them to train their democracies. And so I don't know then why we're talking about fifty year old treaties by imperial powers as though this were the left wing or progressive position here. Well, I, the the, pro, the point here now is not so much what the Taiwanese themselves are saying in this regard. What I was just saying was about the so United States and, and U.S. policy. The issue here, uh, my point is. The one-China policy and the peaceful reunification agreement and understanding provided Taiwan with decades of stability and development. And that sort of relationship should continue. It should continue. And and right now, shifting on both sides by both the Chinese and by the United States away from this original understanding is actually weakening security for Taiwan. It's undermining Taiwan's own security. The Taiwanese don't want changes in the status quo. They want a continuation of the status quo. And that's not what they're getting. But will that occur? I mean, you look at the fate of Hong Kong. You look at increasing Chinese threats directed at Taiwan. Uh, Even if Taiwan, you just claim as though it would do nothing and then things would be all right. That's not the case. China actively tries to undermine Taiwan. For example, there are Taiwanese that are kidnapped by China. Uh, for example, Li Mingzhou, who's one of the people that Pelosi met with today. Obviously, it's a political stunt, but there's that. You look at the police crackdown in Hong Kong, the detention of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, and these do not offer alternatives that Taiwanese people think of as peace. China is a power that is expanding. It wishes to expand. It wishes to challenge the U.S. It is modeling itself after the U.S., even using anti-terror discourse drawn from the U.S. war on terror. And so then why do you think that China would simply allow Taiwan to let live? That's not how imperial powers work. I'm not, I don't I don't generalize to to imperial powers across the board. They all behave as such. I don't want to get into that kind of argument because you get into all kinds of exceptions when you talk about that. But in this particular case, I think the issue is what best serves Taiwan's security interests over time. If you assume that the and Chinese so have, have absolutely, Chinese if you assume that the Chinese have absolutely interest. no interest whatsoever in maintaining, avoiding a conflict over Taiwan, that they're just basically preparing to attack Taiwan, seize it, and hold it, then we are in a different kind of situation from what we have been in for the last many decades. And I would not assume that the Chinese are developing or focused primarily on a policy of invading, seizing, and holding Taiwan. They're not stupid. They understand that that would be a huge roll of the dice. What they would prefer to do is to establish a relationship with Taiwan that was one in which Taiwan became increasingly inclined towards dealing with the mainland in some political way and could resolve the situation peacefully. That's what they'd like. Now, the Chinese have not been doing things that make that more likely. I'm not letting the Chinese off the hook here. I'm saying that the Chinese themselves have also been doing things that have been changing the status quo. Yes, they have been raising concerns in Taiwan and in the United States, and the United States has in turn responded to this by doubling down on deterrence. So what you have on both sides now is a heavy emphasis on military deterrence, heavy emphasis on worst-case outcomes, very little real communication about Taiwan and where Taiwan's status lies and how you can stabilize the country. You've got this posturing going on and this positioning going on between both sides that is not serving the interests of Taiwan at all. If, if I can, if I, if I can ask uh, Brian, following up on this issue of, the, of, the, of the, uh, the rest of the world not taking into account the aspirations of the Taiwanese people, if the Taiwanese people do wish the majority of them for independence from China, is it the responsibility of the United States to defend Ta- Taiwan's viewpoints? Why should the United States be the country that is constantly the policeman of where, where democracy is expressed in the world? 
Well, it hasn't been. I mean, the U.S. backed authoritarian dictatorship in Taiwan for decades under Chiang Kai-shek and his son, Chiang Ching-kuo. And now in the present, Taiwan is a geopolitical chess piece for the U.S. to be traded off, perhaps, or it raises stakes for negotiations. That was very visible under Donald Trump. You know, some idealized him in Taiwan. And then now at the present, the view from Americans is that, well, we should just fork over Taiwan to China, that this is the way to keep peace. It seems very convenient logic for people from an imperial power in order to always maintain this. So what is the outcome that we hope for? It is not conflict on either side. There will be enormous losses, Taiwanese or Chinese, more Chinese perhaps, in fact, based on some of the estimates of an invasion. So how do we avoid this outcome? But we cannot assume that China will be an active, rational actor here when it is increasingly authoritarian. Xi Jinping's interests are not those of the Chinese people. For example, provoking a crisis, losing an enormous amount of tens of thousands of young people, that might be the way for Xi to maintain power. It might be the way to expand power for him. It cannot be then just assuming that the CCP will act rationally, always just hoping for Taiwan to become willing to join with China. Because what we see is that it takes a velvet glove approach sometimes, offering economic incentives. At the same time, it tries to set examples, which we see in Hong Kong, Tibet, Xinjiang, authoritarian repression, uh, drilling in the South China Seas, uh, territorial claims disputed with other Southeast Asian countries in the area. And so there's that. This world is not just that between the U.S. and China. And we cannot act as progressives or leftists, seeing things in a bipolar world, seeing no other agency from any other force. We need to think of ways out of this binary. And I don't see that happening. And I'd like to follow that up, uh, uh, Michael Swain, uh, this issue of we shouldn't see this as a bipolar world. Where are the rest of the nations of the world and the United Nations when it comes to the issues of of Taiwan and China and uh, a one a one China policy? Well, what we see is that the majority of countries in the world have have either not challenged or have explicitly accepted some variation of a one-China policy. That is, that they have recognized that Taiwan is uh, part of China, um, or they have not challenged that point. Um, America and its closest allies have adopted very similar positions on that. Um, Very few countries in the world recognize Taiwan as an independent state. There are a small handful of countries, primarily in Central America, Most countries do not see Taiwan as a sovereign independent state, and they don't want to get embroiled, however, in the China-Taiwan conflagration or confrontation. They want to have good relations with both China and with Taiwan, so they don't want to backstop actions that could really upset the stability of the situation now and lead to crisis or conflict. But unfortunately, um, that is the direction in which we're moving because of the kinds of calculations and the worst casing and the zero-sum sorts of approaches that are being adopted by both the United States and China. We're going to leave it there. I thank you so much for being with us. Of course, we're going to continue to follow this issue. Michael Swain, director of the Quincy Institute's East Asia program, and Brian Qixing Hu, Taiwanese-American journalist and editor of New Bloom magazine, speaking to us from Taipei. Next up, Senate Republicans reverse themselves again— After being humiliated by both comedian Jon Stewart and U.S. vets, and they agreed to join Democrats in passing a bill to aid U.S. vets poisoned by the Pentagon's use of toxic burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan. We'll talk about the impact of these burn pits on both U.S. vets and on Iraqis. Stay with us.
Crisis by Kate Fagan. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Senate Republicans reversed themselves again and passed a bill Tuesday night with Democrats to aid U.S. veterans poisoned by toxic waste from U.S. military burn pits in Iraq and Afghanistan. The measure would require the Department of Veterans Affairs to remove the burden of proof from vets who say their health problems are linked to the Pentagon's use of these burn pits, expanding health care and disability benefits to some three and a half million former U.S. service members exposed to the burning toxic waste. The legislation passed with a bipartisan vote of 86 to 11, just days after Senate Republicans last week blocked the bill known as the PACT Act, triggering outrage from military veterans and supporters who led round-the-clock protests outside the U.S. Capitol demanding action from the Senate. Many vets and their families camped out on the steps of the Capitol since last week's vote. Comedian John Stewart, who's an outspoken advocate for military veterans, condemns Senate Republicans after they blocked the measure last Thursday. So ain't this a bitch? Yeah. Yep. Ain't this a bitch? Yep. America's heroes who fought in our wars outside sweating their asses off with oxygen battling all kinds of ailments while these mother sit in the air conditioning walled off from any of it. They don't have to hear it. They don't have to see it. They don't have to understand that these are human beings. Do you get it yet? Do we see that these are these aren't heroes? These are men and women, mothers and fathers, sisters and brothers. Comedian John Stewart not being so funny. The bill now heads to President Biden's desk, who's expected to quickly sign it into law. Biden has said he believes toxic burn pits may have contributed to the 2015 death of his son, Beau Biden, who served in Iraq and was then diagnosed with brain cancer. This is John Stewart again speaking Tuesday alongside veterans after the Senate approved the PACT Act. We'll say this. Uh I'm not sure I've ever seen a situation where people who have already given so much had to fight so hard to get so little. And uh, I hope we learn a lesson. Exposure from toxic U.S. military burn pits has also led to birth defects and other serious illnesses and disabilities among communities in Iraq and Afghanistan, who are still reeling from the catastrophic aftermath of U.S. occupation. Toxic waste contaminated vast lands, water, and polluted the air. For more, we're joined by two guests to discuss the promise to address Comprehensive Toxics Act of 2022, which is packed. 
Kali Rubai is an assistant professor of anthropology at Purdue University, whose work focuses on structural violence, anti-colonial feminism, health justice, and the ecological impacts of war in the Middle East. She's just back from Fallujah in Iraq, where she was studying the impact of the burn pits. She's joining us from West Lafayette, Indiana. And in Washington, D.C., Kelly Vlahos is with us, senior advisor for the Quincy Institute, editorial director at Responsible Statecraft. Welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, Kelly Vlahos, let's begin with you in Washington, D.C., as this bill has just been passed by the Senate, Republicans reversing themselves again. Explain what happened. What led to—well, at the beginning, they supported it. And then when Manchin reached a deal with Schumer, to the shock of the Republicans, on a totally different bill to do with climate change and um, taxing corporations, uh, they came out in, what did one newspaper describe it, a fit of peak and just reversed themselves on this bill. Well, uh, Senator Pat Toomey had been raising a fuss about this bill uh, for weeks since, since it was passed, uh, since it passed the House. His issue was that Democrats were taking a um, $400 billion uh, package of a uh, piece of money that was going to veterans' health care and making it discretionary, or making it mandatory, rather, uh, as opposed to discretionary funding. This would be in addition to the $250 billion that was carved out for this Pact Act, which would also be mandatory funding. Why is that important? It's important because the the funding wouldn't have to go through the the regular um, uh, appropriations process every year and be debated. And so their claim was that the Democrats were creating some other slush fund in which. $400 billion uh, would, be, would be made mandatory. They didn't like that. They said they had assurances from the Democrats that uh, that would be uh, amended by the time it reached their desk. It hadn't been. So they kicked up a fuss led by Senator Pat Toomey and, as you know, killed the bill, the PACT Act, last week. Well, as you also mentioned, they were humiliated in the response. Um, I, I personally thought— hey, I'm all for fiduciary responsibility and oversight of funding. There's plenty of waste, fraud, and abuse in this town. But why put the, uh, veterans in the crosshairs? And so they were forced to turn around, accept a— um, Except the situation as it was, and as you as as you said, it it passed uh, with overwhelming um, support uh, yesterday. Uh, I'd like to bring in uh, Kali Rubai uh, on this issue. Um, my estimate is over the last sixty years since the since the uh, early years of the Vietnam War, the United States has been pretty much involved in conflicts or occupations or military war. For all maybe 10 years or so, when the uh, U.S. troops were not uh, stationed in these conflict zones, could you talk about, therefore, these burn pits have become almost uh, a part of the process of the U.S. military. Could you explain how what these burn pits are, why they're necessary, and uh, what the military has done to protect its soldiers? Sure. Uh, thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Um, 
Burn pits are massive incineration fields, sometimes as big as football fields, but of course there were many smaller ones throughout Iraq and Afghanistan as well. They were in operation for over a decade and released high levels of dioxin and all sorts of unknown uh, harmful substances into the air. Um, they were exceptionally large in Iraq and Afghanistan because this was a war for profit. So taxpayers funded the U.S. occupation, but the people who were spending that money were private corporations with no-bid contracts like Halliburton. And that meant that when a computer or a tank had a mechanical problem, it was more profitable to just throw the whole thing away into a burn pit and then sell a brand new one rather than fix the problem, which leveraged a much higher material cost onto Iraqi bodies and Iraqi land or in, um, Afghani bodies and Afghani land. Um, burn pits are always used to destroy um, any kind of material that could be used as a multiplier force by an opposing army. So you want to get rid of all of your military goods and information. Um, but in this case, they were incredible incredibly and exponentially toxic because of this no-bid contract relationship that privatized the war. And of course, these pits not only affect the soldiers, but they affect the civilian populations that may be uh, in proximity to them. Could you talk about what's been reported or documented in terms of the health effects on the civilians near these burn pits? Sure. Um, while veterans saw acute short-term exposure to burn pits at peak health at the prime of their lives, Iraqis faced long-term diffuse exposure at all stages of the life course. So the health effects were varied and widespread. There is epidemiological evidence that living near U.S. bases in Iraq and therefore near burn pits increased the likelihood of giving birth to a child with a birth defect or of getting cancer. So those are some of the most acute long-term effects. Burn pits are not the biggest figure of environmental and health harm for Iraqis. They have also been facing military occupation, bombings, shootings, displacement, and layers of military incursion by different occupation forces since the U.S. invasion. And these things have all added up to collapse in public infrastructure that would be used to contend with the health effects of burn pits, um, poor overall health, and then, of course, damaged conditions for farming and fishing. I've been living with and interviewing people who are experiencing these effects. And of course, uh, the effect on people's livelihoods is also impactful. I visited uh, Haj Ali, which is a pseudonym for a farmer who lived a mile and a half downwind from the Bilad Air Base burn pit in Yathrib. He had 52 cows that he was taking care of before the Americans uh, occupied in 2003. And now he has just two cows. And that's because so many in the last decade and a half have died or were born sick. He's afraid to keep investing in them. And he remembered uh, all different colors of smoke, black, white, red, yellow, producing different kinds of weather above his farm, depending on what was being burned in the burn pits um, week after week, month after one month. Uh, and it even though the burn pit there has been has been stopped, it was just last year that he had a calf that was born with no legs, uh, lived for a few days and then died. He showed me his chickens who continue to get sick and die. They have trouble growing feathers, trouble walking straight. And as he was showing me around his farm, some of his neighbors came to complain about neurological problems and reporting brain cancer from having lived near the burn pit. People are now having to rely on personal filters for their water and air in their homes if they can afford it. Um, when I was living in Fallujah, my tap water was brown. The environmental effects of U.S. occupation are widespread, and people are aware that the environment itself has become a vector for their long-term health issues.
So, Kelly Vlahos, uh, in the PACT Act, can you talk about um, how the U.S. military first responded to the U.S. soldiers—a lot of denial, a lot of covering up—and whether there is any part of this act that deals with reparations for both Iraqis and uh, people in Afghanistan? No, 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 there's no reparations for— uh Anyone outside of the uh, veterans community, uh, nobody in Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, <clears throat> there are some benefits to family members of uh, veterans who passed away due to service-connected, now service-connected injuries, whether it be cancer or uh, respiratory issues. Th those are the two primary injuries that veterans are suffering from today. So there are some Benefits to family members. Um, most of the benefits in the new PACT Act, which are already up on the VA website, which I, I thought was incredible. I was searching, uh, searching around last night online, and I found out that the VA already has a whole process set up for veterans to access these, these new um, benefits. Um, but it expands the, um, the injuries that are now service-connected, considered presumptive uh, service-connected injuries uh, to 23, which is huge, uh, considering that some 80 percent of veterans have um, have been thwarted in their attempts to get benefits for their burn pit-connected injuries over the last 10, 15 years. So anything from uh, cancer-related, respiratory, as well as skin um, uh, injuries or uh, skin problems and issues um, are now considered presumptive uh, service-connected injuries. Uh, so veterans can access full health care now. They can access disability payments, which they weren't. Also extends uh, the presumptions for Vietnam veterans who have been fighting Oh, my goodness, for uh, my lifetime uh, to get their injuries related to Agent Orange exposure. Um, this is also in the PACT Act. So this is monumental on so many levels. Um, you, you played the comments from John Stewart. The one thing that, that my heart sort of skipped to be is when he said, I hope we learn lesson. I hoped we had learned the lesson from Vietnam, and we didn't. We didn't learn the lesson in Persian Gulf. We have Persian Gulf veterans who are still fighting uh, for the same for presumption uh, for service-connected benefits for their Persian Gulf illnesses. And so now we have Iraq and Afghanistan veterans fighting. It seems like this is generational, just like the wars are generational. Um, the fact that the government hasn't learned its lessons, hasn't taken responsibility uh, for for the harm that they put these veterans, these these service members and their families in, um, it continues for yet another generation. And Kelly, that's precisely the question I wanted to ask you in terms of the comparisons between the fights over Agent Orange and during the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, it was a chronic fatigue syndrome, wasn't it, that soldiers were complaining about? And there was a—what uh, has happened with the, the battles around those issues? They're still fighting. They're still fighting slowly, but surely they've been getting recognition. Uh, when I started covering that story um, in the late mid to late 1990s, uh, it was called uh, battle fatigue, uh, Gulf War syndrome. Now it's called Gulf War illness. Uh, they have uh, basically, um, over time, uh, through many studies, have found that the, the combination of the uh, environmental conditions, the dust, uh, and uh, the 
uh, it was the, some of the shots that they had given the uh, soldiers before they went off uh, to battle, and also um, the, the insect repellent uh, that they had actually been spraying all of their tents and their bodies with. That combination had created uh, a toxicity in these veterans. Uh, and, you know, because it was a combination, because the, the, the illnesses and the symptoms had, were so vague and they were different for, for different people, ranging from fatigue, headaches, um, neurological issues, cancers, um, birth defects in the children of Gulf War uh, veterans. Um, it, it took this long for to get the get any recognition, and that's the frustrating thing. We can't point to one illness, one injury, um, and we see that in the. Um, the Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. And it's not just veterans who served um, in Iraq and Afghanistan. If you look at the PACT Act, it's covering a lot of vets who were in, across the Middle East where these burn pits were um, deployed. And so we're talking about a population of 3.5 million veterans who cycled in and out of these wars, tens of thousands of whom had been in and around burn pits. We already have over 250, 260,000 veterans who have registered on this burn pit registry that the VA set up a few, and, uh, several years ago. Uh, well, we want to end with Kali Rabai. Does the PACT Act mean uh, that people are organizing in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, for reparations? Great question. Yeah, um, just to, to add on to what Kelly was saying, uh, it's it's certainly not just burn pits. It's certainly not um, just Agent Orange. Um, but there is one really great way to avoid war-related injury, which is, is to not go. Um, war is the singular cause of these diffuse health problems and these health crises. And every war has a different chemical cause, but the, the practice remains the same. Um, the U.S. has not done environmental cleanup in a way that's acceptable to those living in Iraq and certainly not taken responsibility to help people manage long-term health effects of burn pit exposure. While most burn pits are no longer active, um, they continue to have long-term effects. And the campaign for veteran health care could have been a joint struggle that included Iraqi people. Transnational solidarity is key component to health justice campaigns. And I would like to see um, the U.S. veteran community reaching out to Iraqi uh, environmental activists and health justice activists who are pushing for not just reparations, but basic repair at this point, managing the health costs of property loss, dismemberment, uh, dispossession, and all of the environmental health effects of warfare in general. Kali Rubai, I want to thank you for being with us, Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Purdue University, just back from Fallujah, Iraq, and Kelly Vlahos, Senior Advisor at Quincy Institute and Editorial Director of their um, uh, newsletter, Responsible Statecraft. Um, next up, we talk about Kansas becoming the first state to vote on abortion rights after the Supreme Court overturned Roe. Voters overwhelmingly rejected an anti-abortion constitutional amendment. Stay with us. I've been flipping through my timeline, trying to get my mind right. My city cried out. I got to cool down, but I'm under pressure. Looking with my Crisco. Look at where my fist go. A renegade when I'm in a rage. I got to cool down, but I'm under pressure. I keep my hands dirty, my mind clean. Got a new agenda. Put 
by Janelle Monet. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. On Tuesday, Kansas became the first state to vote on abortion rights since the Supreme Court overturned Roe. Voters overwhelmingly rejected an anti-abortion constitutional amendment. Nearly 60 percent of Kansan voters oppose the ballot measure. The lopsided vote surprised many since Donald Trump won Kansas by 15 percent in 2020. If the amendment had passed, it would have cleared the way for Republican state lawmakers to ban the procedure. For more, we get an update from journalist Amy Littlefield, abortion access correspondent for The Nation, just in Kansas, where she was covering Tuesday's vote, now joining us from Boston. So as you flew back, the results came in, Amy. Can you talk about the significance of this first state where voters actually had a say? Amy, this is incredible. This is huge. I mean, I was on Democracy Now! with you yesterday saying I thought this vote was going to be close. Everyone I was talking to thought this was going to be a nail biter. Amy, this is not close at all. This is a landslide. Okay, this is huge. And I was boarding a plane and and flying out of Kansas as results were starting to trickle in. I right before the flight landed, I saw 60 percent. I thought, oh, my gosh. There must be some sort of distortion. This is very low percentages coming in so far. And and that held throughout the night. I, I, I think people in Kansas are stunned by their own enormous power right now. Um, although I think there were signs that this was coming. There was an enormous amount of energy that went into this, this grassroots organizing effort. I think pro-choice people have known for a long time that they are a solid majority even in states with conservative legislatures, but they've not always been a mobilized majority. And I think in Kansas right now, we have a glimpse of what that majority can achieve when they mobilize. And I think you're going to hear a lot of people giving credit to the Supreme Court for today's victory in Kansas. But I think the credit belongs with the grassroots organizers, the people who've been standing out on street corners, canvassing under the blazing sun and the pouring rain, phone banking, people who've never been involved in politics and people who have been involved in politics for years. I mean, this was just an incredible effort that brought about this victory. And I think it's an incredibly strong signal about the will of the people versus the will of state legislatures and the Supreme Court. And, and Amy, certainly the organizers of the no vote uh, are to be congratulated. But there, there is a, a caveat here. We're talking about a primary in the middle of August where probably uh, do you have any sense of what percentage of the total electorate actually participated? I mean, that's an incredibly important point. Um, because that's what Republicans in the state legislature were banking on, right? They scheduled this for an August primary, thinking that, number one, turnout would be lower. And number two, there were a lot of exciting Republican contested races that Democrats didn't have. And so they thought Republicans would be turning out. I think numbers are still being counted, but the, the numbers that we're seeing are on par with what was seen in the 2018 midterms, okay? And this is for an August primary, which is incredible. I mean, I was at polling locations yesterday. There 
there were lines out the door into the parking lot. People were starting to curve around. They were yelling at each other, hey, get into the shade. So we, I mean, people were, I talked to one woman who'd put on a sun hat because she was expecting to stand out in the sun for a long time. Um, I mean, people waited for a really long time in line to vote. Um, so this turnout was pretty amazing. I keep thinking about this woman that I met on my way around reporting yesterday. She was just standing by the side of the road. Her name's Kathy Griffin, not the comedian. I'm talking about the former liquor store owner um, from Wichita. And she was standing out on the street corner with a vote no sign that said laws don't stop abortion and yelling trust women Jesus did at at passing cars. She's been out there every day since even before the Supreme Court decision because she knew this amendment vote was coming. And she told me, you know that this vote no, this abortion rights campaign is probably going to fail, right? Because in her words, Republicans have been pretty darn sneaky about how they had scheduled and managed this vote. And I can't wait to call her back again today and see how she's feeling, because this is just an astounding victory for her and the many other people like her who've been involved in this effort. I mean, a Democratic governor um, uh, is in office in Kansas, though the state voted um, by— Trump won by something like more than 15 percent in 2020. Um, But— the counties that uh, passed this were many more than those who voted for the Democratic governor. I mean, what an amazing sign for things to come, close to a million people voting. We've never seen anything like this, as you said, um, in a primary. Finally, what does this mean for the message to for the November elections, where there are other constitutional amendments being voted on, like in Michigan? Right. I mean, I think we saw signs of this with Michigan. I mean, Michigan organizers, grassroots organizers, reproductive justice groups in in Michigan managed to get a tenth of the state's population to sign on almost a million people to sign on to an effort to put a sweeping protection for reproductive freedom to the voters in the November election. There's similar measures to enshrine reproductive freedom in California and Vermont coming up. So I think we're likely to see even more ballot initiatives aimed at expanding abortion access, because I think voters in Kansas have just proven that the will of the people can be a powerful tool to overrule the will of a Republican-dominated legislature. Amy Littlefield, thanks so much for joining us. Journalist covering reproductive health care, abortion access correspondent for The Nation, former producer for Democracy Now! That does it for our show. Democracy Now! produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Messiah Rhodes, Nareen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tarina Nadura, Sam Malkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.